Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Like this might be a bit like yeah 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 get uncomfortable. Uh, where do we begin then? I guess we begin with last night. Um, it was funny as we were sort of talking about today and like arranging a chat. You were shouting out some names of some previous guests that have been on the show, and you were like Eagles of Death Metal, and some girl was like, "What is that guy in the Eagles of Death Metal?" And they were following me out, and they were like trying to scope me out. I was like, "No, I'm not in the Eagles of Death Metal." <laughs> At 100 Club, your first time there. That was great, but the last time I saw you was at Electric Ballroom. Was that the Eagles gig? Yeah, yeah. and Slim Jim Phantom was walking across the stage yeah, and, man. and stuff. And uh, yeah, the Electric Ballroom's a cool place. Being right here in Camden, I always walk by. And I think I played there once on a record, uh, maybe the Heat tour. Uh-huh. So, But um, yeah, it's good to see you again, man. Always you good know. to see you, dude. Um, without going in too much on a sad topic to start, uh, the, the merch guy. That obviously passed away. Nick Alexander, was, yeah. He was with you guys for a time as well, right? He did his first tour as a merch person with uh, with my band, with Jesse Mount's, uh with Fine Art of Self-Destruction tour. Um, you know, we, he was a guy that was around, friends with some folks and, and fan and just a cool dude. And he was just great. And, and uh, maybe we did two or three tours together. 
And then he just went on. The last time I saw him, I think, before the bot decline was we were out here in Camden and did the shows with the replacements at the um, Roundhouse. Roundhouse, yeah. And I saw Nick that day. He was working, and it was he was just the same as he always was, so sweet, and gave him a big hug. And, you know, he had gone on from doing my tours to, you know, working for everybody. And, and unfortunately, he was there at the bot decline with the Eagles and uh, protecting another girl, laid over there and got shot and... Yeah, it it was just heartbreaking. I mean, so many people that were lost that day, but but to know somebody like that and watch him kind of grow up, you know, and, and when you travel and tour with people, you live with them so intimately, they're part of your family. And Of course, yeah. So um, his sister does something every year. I think you're probably aware of it. They do it in London, a charity um, for Nick. And um, the name escapes me now. It's uh, all this jet lag, but it's... Um, they were at the Eagles show that night as well, right? His family, didn't you bump into one of his parents or something on the way out? I did. Ran- they had a booth that they were set up for that charity that they do. And Frank Turner's been part of it. It's a yearly thing in memory of Nick Alexander. Um, I'm tempted to look it up, but it actually, yeah, they were there. They had something set up that the Eagles let them have. And, um, yeah, I'm close with Dave Catching, who is, I, I don't think he tours with them now, but the guitarist in Eagles and was in Queens of Stone Age. And, you know, yeah, yeah, I love He Dave. runs Rancher. Yeah, runs Rancher Studios out there, Rancho Deluxe. But um, just watching those clips and you see him, he hears the shots and he's just, he's just looking like in disbelief. He can't believe that this, you know, that this is really happening. Yeah. So, um, and I know that room. I played the Bataclan, you know, too, uh, you know, with uh, with Ryan years ago. And I got stuff. to play there in February, and it was such a huge honor. And it was so, like, joyful, the occasion, to see people out there smiling, laughing, and enjoying themselves in that room. Um, I guess when something like that happens, it really hits home how small this community is. That was kind of where I was going with, you know, talking about this at the start, is you all kind of go through these same paths in life don't you and then everything comes back around and everyone kind of eventually gets to know each other in that way as you say like a family yeah it's a really small planet you know and you you learn that quickly touring and traveling or just how people find each other through you know needing the music or needing to connect and, and feel you know like we're not alone and um you know i think what happened with the body clan you know, there's always horrible things going on in the world terrorist attacks and and violence and all kinds of things but would hate and, and here was something that was right in our backyard as in the rock and roll community and there has been stuff like that but this was something that on this level i think you know really felt extra personal besides it being personal to the people we knew it just was really hit on the home front so not to be forgotten you know that type of stuff happens all the time and it's uh, we got to keep spreading the positive word and try to give people more love in this life you know well, they can't shut us down either, can they? Like, try as they may. <laughs> I think the, the community really came together in the wake of that, across the board. Musicians, managers, fans, everyone, and really stood together defiantly and sort of said, you know, we're not going to let this stop the love, the joy, the music, the art. Right, and the Eagles went back and played their room again, you know, which is just, that's great. Um, Los Angeles. Yes. Everybody who knows you associates you with the East Coast, New York, for this new record, Sunset Kids. You went west, and you told a story last night about the, I guess, the kind of series of events that led to working with Lucinda in L.A. with the kind of Tom Petty influence and the sound and all of that. I wonder if you could recount now for the people listening the kind of anecdote that you shared on stage last night about how the the L.A. component of this record all came about and how it shaped the, the process and the sound. 
The record, even the title, um, Sunset Kids, you know, it, it has a West Coast kind of thing to it. It is part of reflecting in the sound. But initially, I met Lucinda Williams. I was just a fan, you know, in the 90s. I was looking for something different to listen to. And um, I started to buy more songwriter stuff. I was touring, you know, in Degeneration. It was essentially more of a rock and roll punk band opening for Offspring and Green Day and all these great bands. But you know, we'd write these lyrics and the crowd was just about the mosh pit and them moving around in a circle. And I wanted people to really hear these songs and the lyrics. And so I was getting a little frustrated and I wanted to go back to maybe my roots, even before punk, where I just love songs and Elton John and Jim Croce and the Rolling Stones ballads. And so uh, I, I started to listen to other things and I listened to a Steve Earle record, I Feel Alright. And this voice just popped out of uh, the last track it was a duet. I was called uh, "You're Still Standing There." Great song, great record, actually. Really good rock and roll record. I feel alright. And here was this voice in the second verse, and I was just in love with the sound of it. And uh, those days, Joey Ramone was still alive, and the Ramones were not playing anymore. But he was still a connoisseur of rock and roll, and we would talk every morning. He was pretty sober, so he'd be jacked up on caffeine and call me up early, and we'd get on the phone and be like, "What are you listening to?" and you know, he'd tell me some stuff, and he was like, what are you listening to? And I said, I heard this woman, you know, on the Steve Earle record, Lucinda Williams. I got to go out and buy all her records. And he was like, I know her. I'm like, Joey, you know Lucinda Williams? And he's like, yeah, I did like a songwriter in the round thing with her at the Bottom Line nightclub. And so it was just this wild coincidence. And I bought her records, and I'd go see her. And then I met her at a jazz club in New York, uh, the Blue Note, one day uh, through some of the guys in Ryan Adams' band and Ryan. And she was just a sweet, humble, very down-to-earth, very uh, human, just kind of very approachable lady. But she's also had this badass swagger for like a roots southern, you know, singer that got lost in, you know, the Americana country thing. She was, I don't know, like just female Keith Richards like the hell yeah, yeah, yeah so but also I could see that you know she really uh just liked people and was we had a connection we realized we had the same birthday and we became friends and we'd stay in touch and over the years if we were in each other's cities we would uh get together or go out and listen to records and drink and jump around and talk about stuff and so um I played Los Angeles a few years ago supporting uh an EP I did and uh, she came down to the show in L.A., and I guess in the middle of the set, she started to go to the bar and started writing lyrics on the bar. She calls it her desk. And there was a writer there from Rolling Stone, and they were like, Lucinda Williams at a Jesse Malingate, what's this? So they created an interview where she interviewed me, I interviewed her about this weird friendship collaboration type of feeling of like, you know, we admire each other. She's from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I'm from Queens, New York. And in the article interview, the journalist uh, named was Sarah Rodman, she said, well, how about a collaboration? Will there ever be one? And we were like, I don't know, maybe, you know. And it stayed in my mind. And when I was writing what would be Sunset Kids, my manager, Michael, said, you know, make a list of producers that you're interested in. Think a little different this time. And um, that same week, Lucinda called and said, you know, we're opening for Tom Petty at the Hollywood Bowl, the last nights of his U.S. tour. Do you want to come? So I said to Michael, you know, this sounds fun. I really want to see this. She's going to play an hour, Hollywood Bowl. I heard the Heartbreakers are great on this tour. And uh, what about Lucinda Williams producing the record? And you know, and her husband's pretty great too. He produced her last three records. I know them. They really seem to understand the aesthetic of this thing called rock and roll. <laughs> so we said, all right, let's go out and see the show and then we'll go to dinner next night or two and, you know, we'll talk. So I went out and beautiful night last night of the heartbreakers tour lucinda came out and just killed it for an hour and uh, the sun was coming down and 
Tom Petty came out and, and uh, I'd seen him a bunch. And this night they were on fire, the Heartbreakers. Like it wasn't like any other time where I might have been like, yeah, it's good. This was like another level. And it was so beautiful. It made me want to move to L.A. in a weird way. I was like, this is kind of great. We had a bottle of wine. And there was so many people I kept running into at this gig. There was something magical. The next night we went out with Lucinda and we had a dinner with her husband and we said, you want to do this record? And they seemed interested. I said, well, let me send you the music and see if you like it. And, and uh, I sent them some songs and I uh, went back to New York pretty excited that this might happen. And a few days later, Tom Petty passed away. And it was the same day as the Vegas shootings to go back to this gun crap and all this violence in the world. So it was a heavy day, um, and it took us a little time to catch our breath, and Lucinda was obviously, and her husband were closer to Tom and that camp. So we regrouped in December, and I went out to L.A. We both uh, get the holiday blues, me and Lou, and we thought, let's just work through Christmas. And the idea, there was a gentleman named David Bianco who had been doing the last three Lucinda Williams records, and he had a studio, and we liked him, one, because her records sounded great, he had done Wildflowers, Tom Petty, which was interesting. But more interesting, he had did the first Degeneration album, the first time I ever went in a studio as a kid and never had a major record deal, and he was the guy. So it brought us full circle. That's crazy. Yeah. And so we spent a couple days, uh, and we did five or six songs in uh, Dave's room, as it was called, David Bianco's place. He also did, like, Danzig and Primal Scream, uh, you know, uh, Rocks Off. He mixed that, and he also... Uh, did so many records, Teenager of the Year, Frank Black, and uh, some Teenage Fan Club. But um, wonderful guy, and he would pass during the making of this record as well, which was just another heartbreak. Um, and we worked on Room 13, which would be one of the first songs that came out, and we worked on Shining Down. And uh, Shining Down was something I wrote after Tom Petty passed. I wanted something that had the spirit of his music but was more about my life. I'm not from Florida, and so I wrote pretty autobiographical i wrote that in a florida motel visiting my dad who also was ailing and, and did pass during the making this record so it was a lot of loss i think that's part of the title sunset kids um as a tribute to these people todd youth my guitar player i mentioned last night who was in degeneration and in st mark social with me and millions of great bands he was in. Um, but we did, Room 13 was the first one that I brought the lyrics to Lucinda's house, and we sat around her kitchen table, and as much as I've spent many nights and dinners and drinks with her and her husband Tom, I was nervous because she's so good. And I had all these verses and lyrics, and she sat there and said, you know, these are the three, and she took the words and organized some things and threw a few great words in, and, and we just collaborated. And uh, we had a great time that week of Christmas and, and decided to keep going. So the record was made in L.A. and in New York based around our touring schedules. So it was a bi-coastal experience, but with a real connection to L.A. And in the past, I had always liked Los Angeles for a week or two, but I always felt it was very lonely, and I liked to walk, and I liked to connect. And this time... Yeah, I, I like walking, too, and yeah, you can't walk anywhere yeah, in L.A. Yeah, like I always say, if you walk, <laughs> they think you're a male prostitute, but they're honking their horns on Santa Monica. But it was... Um, Really relaxing and good to, to take myself out of uh, my comfort zone a little bit. So. I might be wrong in saying this, but for me, L.A. seems to be one of the few cities that does actually retain its heritage and almost pushes back against gentrification. It, yeah, I mean, you know, because I get London a lot of... New York's kind of like, you know, all these venues like the Borderline, 
um, you know, they're all going, right? It, it's very funny. Last night, the 100 Club was great to play there. You know, it was a, kind of a strange layout, but I, it was the classic thing of it, this place that's been there maybe 100 years, 100 Club. But um, And the owner was like, oh, the Trogs, and he was bringing up all these shows, and you look at the pictures on the wall, and you smell the old stench of, you know, the old world from centuries ago. But um, they're all gone, right? The Astoria, the, the borderline around the corner, and, and so this is the last of that. And in New York, things don't last. CBGB's open in 74. It was gone in the early 2000s. You know, the city couldn't save it. And, you know, all kinds of maxes. And um, I could list all the clubs and rock and roll landmarks. But um, I'll save that for my walking tour. But I do talk about this when I'm in L.A., even though they do have Starbucks and Chipotle and Subway and all the gentrification shit. They also hold on to things. You could go to the Whiskey A Go Go, which was open Viper in 1961. Rainbow, you could go to the places. Troubadour where Elton John played, or you know, and it's still there. Musso and Franks, where Marilyn drank, or even the Room, yeah, Frolic Room, and you know, and you watch the Tarantino film, and you see some of these locations. Yeah, Both yeah. of those are in that film. Um, you can go to Gil Turner's liquor store where Humphrey Bogart probably bought a drink, or the Roxy where they filmed, you know, Rock and Roll High School. Um, yeah, there's a lot of that that gets retained. I mean, I hear changes, you know, are coming at certain places, the rainbow, the baked potato. So I always find that interesting. You know, you can rag on L.A. and have this Woody Allen, like, you know, oh, the only cultural thing is you can make a right turn on a red light or, you know. But there is a lot more of my New York friends or people just moving there. All the English people always like it because of the warm weather and <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Steve Jones is still there. I think Joe Strummer had some many years there. And But, um, you know, as they say, wherever you go, there you are, right? So you just got to find it. But but I enjoyed the energy, and I think it fit into the sound of the record a lot. And I did a lot of writing in, in hotels out there. I find it comforting to write in a place that's not your home, that doesn't have the distractions of your usual routine, the white walls. There's some kind of padded cell about a hotel room. So. And there's no emotional ties, is there? It's like a blank canvas, and that's exactly, exactly. what Exactly, yeah, that's, that, that helps a lot. And if you keep it clean, you need it all cleaned up before I sit down with some OCD writing here but um, yeah, so and we did some stuff in New York at a studio called Flux, which is in my neighborhood. And uh, an engineer named Jeff Sanoff took over, who had worked with uh, Little Steven and Fountains of Wayne, and um, just just a lot of stuff. I think he worked on my second record. A great guy from D.C. and and he kind of finished the record out, and, and really because because David passed, uh, David Bianco had, had just passed, like got a phone call right in the middle of the record, so it was kind of shocking. So sweet guy. How did the, the West Coast hardcore bands and the DC hardcore bands, how did they feed in and serve as almost, if they did, like a catalyst for the New York hardcore scene? Because you were right there on the front line of that whole birth of that right. scene, right? I think a, a lot of it, you know, I mean, I kind of had my own take on it before DC influenced me. I mean, the Bad Brains, I guess, hearing that. So that's DC, hearing Pay to Come and seeing them play to like 10, 20 people. But also we were, um, you know, getting fanzines and magazines like Damage and Slash and, and Flipside from California and seeing little blitz, little blips here of things like Black Flag was on some late night TV show on like the new phenomenon of what's happening in Southern California. And like you were looking for things because as I told the story last night, when I was younger at that age, 12, 13, everyone said, well, it's over. Punk rock is dead. You know, the dead boys have broken up. Johnny Thunder's half dead and the Blondie's playing, you know, pop music and the Ramones are wearing striped shirt. Like there was kind of a weird time. It was new romantic. People were dressed up as pirates and Peter Pan and rockabilly was in again. But 
it, it for us as kids we wanted raw music that was driven so we'd buy the records from the uk which was called oi i guess at the time bands like cockney rejects and exploited uk subs whether that's the second or third wave or generation of where you where you put that the waves were so quick back then, yeah weren't they? so you know those things would hold us over and the damned kept going but even they were kind of changing with the black album and strawberry so in california dead kennedys were like a bridge thing because they had a punk kind of thing but then they had that fast stuff there's some songs on fresh fruit that really move and circle jerks record came out and those black flag records so we were getting that stuff from california the germs record you know and it walks that line between punk rock and what that next sound you know what hardcore um what was that band that did out of vogue um uh the middle class that's one of the fastest early records and the dickies and so we started we wanted speed after seeing the bad rains we'd listen to our ramones records on the faster speed uh jack flanagan my friend from the band the mob would do that and we got hooked on that so that was brewing and that affected my writing as a a 13 14 year old and uh some of the english records were cool because it kept that rawness alive but the speed was coming from there and then i met with the guys from dc at um I think at the Black Flag Mission of Burma gig, it's a famous gig in New York at the Pertman Lounge, and those DC kids, Henry and Ian and all their friends, had been out west on the Teen Idols tour, and they had saw the Huntington Beach kids, and they had seen the Circle Jerks, and they and they brought a lot of that back. I really feel, I, I think they'll tell you that, but and they brought that back to the East Coast and into DC, and then they brought it into New York. So we're at this Black Flag Mission of Burma double bill, and at that time we would go see bands like Bad Brains in New York, the small scene we had, and we go see Stimulators which was a band that was punky but people would knock over the tables at Max's push them to the side and they would jump up and down pogoing and then slam before moshing so the slamming would go back and forth into each other but it was girls and guys gay and straight it wasn't this um, macho exactly now I didn't mind it and then suddenly we're at this black flag gig and we had some tough dancers that would skank guys like James Contra and Mojo and, and Harley Flanagan and all these people you know out there and then suddenly these kids from D.C. who I didn't know that well at the time come and they're doing that creepy crawl thing and they just wrecked almost everybody on that dance floor at the Petman Lounge. They got down low and they were really getting into that other kind of thing and it just it was pretty wild. Some New York guys really held up. But um, that became a thing. So there was that. And then what you call moshing and people know is uh, the mosh pit or, you know, and they have those barriers whenever you play a gig in front because there's going to be moshing. And I don't know who put that word out there more, you know, internationally, maybe the band Anthrax. But everybody says it now. People's grandmothers. Is there a mosh pit? <laughs> but I think um, where that came from, from this time, from my recollection, is always interesting to me is the the Bad Brains were playing and they'd play reggae and they would listen to Bob Marley and and all this reggae music and bring it to us white youth in in New York. And HR would kind of say something like, mash down Babylon, mash down. And I think it was misinterpreted by some kids from Queens, the mob guys, Jack Flanagan again, and they started saying, mash it up, man, mash it up. And it came from this mash down, mash down Babylon to mash it up. And it would get on flyers, mash it up, and you put your fists out. And so it's just funny how misinterpreting, hearing something and people just saying it became this, you know, word as we know it as a, a reference point for a dance style globally. That's like a whole essay you could do. Maybe there is one out there. If there isn't, there should be. Like the history of the mosh. Yeah, and also (laughs) where where words come from and something like that. But also, and then the styles of dancing. And uh, then they had us, me and a bunch of friends and some of the DC guys and Chicago guys went on TV to show the world this dancing on Saturday Night Live with fear. And uh, 
that was pretty funny. I was in junior high school, and Mr. Schlackman goes, I know where you were this weekend. <laughs> and I was like, how did this guy? Yeah, well, thinking back now, a guy in his 40s, it's probably home on a Saturday in Queens watching SNL, sees my leather jacket jump off the stage. But, uh, you know, it's it's all about expression. I think that whole hardcore scene was a lot of fun, but then it got really macho and metal, and, and that's kind of when I stepped aside, maybe mid-84 or something like that. But I still go back to those records, and I kind of, you know, I need it. We learned a lot from just creating and doing stuff, you know, without any support and just helping each other, you know. It's that DIY thing. Is that where you went with D-Generation then? Was that like, like a conscious, creative step to try and move away from where hardcore was going and reinvigorate your love of rock and roll? Um, it would take a few years later, I think, um, after I broke up Heart Attack at a band called Hope in the mid-'80s that never did anything besides demos. We never got a record deal. But it was a tricky time for me. My mom had just passed, and I was raising my sister. I have a younger sister, and I was trying to find a way to live. And So I became a moving guy, a man with van, and I worked for everybody from Barbara Streisand to the Swans to, you know, whatever, little bands at the music building in New York, take them to CBGBs. I'd put up flyers. We moved, you know, beds and futons and record collections and got hernias. But so I was doing that a lot. It was like a roadie. And uh, that's a wide clientele list as well. Yeah, it was a wacky list. I was some, you know, NYU students to uh, people with dead dogs. And <laughs> um, so, you know, in a lot of ways I did that and I couldn't get arrested with, with this band Hope, though it was similar to what I do now as a solo artist. It was uh, influenced by like Bruce Springsteen and Credence and Neil Young and uh, and The Replacements, you know, and, uh, and and I was doing that for about four years. And then the early 90s, Degeneration came as a reaction to, we just felt, you know, the grunge thing had a great energy, but it, we didn't like the style. People dressed up as, like, gas station attendants and farmers, and then people were doing the shorts and the funky thing and the socks, and the, and we just wanted to, and then the metal hairband thing, we just wanted something that uh, was the kind of band we wished we saw if we were alive to, to go to shows if we were old enough in the 70s. So we made, like, this five-headed rock and roll band that was kind of punky and there was a lot of hardcore influence too in, in degeneration with songs like scorch and um you know frankie and whatever so it had that element i think it was all the things we loved and it was five guys that grew up together that you know knew each other since they were you know 10 years old and you know so it was a family and a gang whether you like the music or not we had our thing you know and that's sometimes sometimes that overrides the, the songs and even did you find your audience back home? What was the reaction from like the punk and the hardcore kids to what you were doing with that? Some of the hardcore people, you know, we'd play with bands like Murphy's Law and, and the scene was getting more open-minded. I think we started, when we first came out, we were only accepted in, you know, certain cities. And as time would go on, if we were out with bigger bands, as Green Day and Rancid and bands like that exploded more, you know, it would it would be more open to the crowd. They would be into us. But earlier on, we'd go to different places on tours with rock bands and more of that hair band stuff. And in different cities, they didn't get us unless it was like Chicago or New York or L.A. or you know, major spots. We had a lot of shit thrown at us, chains and bottles and, you know, just a lot of bad reaction back then. It was different. And, and I think it's, we live in a world where everybody now has a tattoo or a piercing or has like a guitar or a Ramon shirt or, you know, a Brazilian wax job or, you know, it was then it, it still wasn't that acceptable outside of, you know, the mainstream areas. So, but I think bands like, Green Day, you know, and Rancid really, and, and No Effects and stuff, they really opened that whole punk rock world to to other kids to come out, and other bands come, you know, from that too. The scene just explodes, so 
but we did our seven years and then like like i said earlier by the time it was it was time for me just to go strip it down again and just just be about songs but um and let people hear the words right yeah and that was it i mean songs like no way out by degeneration and and you know a lot of them we weren't just singing about like tits and penises and cars it wasn't really you know not that we were super political but we made that record though uh the second one the first one with david bianco i didn't even think of this who i mentioned earlier yeah yeah and then we made the second record with rick okasik who just passed away of course. and that would be one of my favorite um people to work with it was the fastest experience too like in two weeks it's like if you go to a doctor or a dentist or something and you're fearing it and you're like are they gonna do this pull this tooth and then they just go like it's done and you're like what that's it like you know what happened i was supposed to suffer and that's how that record was made he just like snuck it out of us rick what was he like as a guy i mean as well as the cars who i adore he obviously did like those early weezer albums he did stuff with like suicide bad didn't brains. He? like jonathan richmond bad brains yeah yeah i didn't realize you know he did that romeo void i might like you better if we slept yeah, together yeah, yeah, i used yeah, to yeah. hear that in clubs as a kid <laughs> but you know we had a major label record deal and we could met we met with all these producers and our a and r guy really wanted to get it right because the first record uh we got dropped from emi we got another chance at columbia records and so we met with everybody. We were getting fat from the dinners and handshakes and beers over the record company budget. So finally, you know, we're like, my band. How old are you at that point, Jesse? Um, in my mid-20s, I guess, yeah. That's so, a good time to be wined and dying. Yeah, right? yeah, it was good. <laughs> but we wanted to get back on the road and make this record. We, the, the A&R guy was holding it tight till it could do it right, you know. And uh, we could be very, some of the people in the band, very disrespectful and treat, you know, a producer. And we could be rough with people. But here came Rick Ocasek. We met him at a place called The Coffee Shop in Union Square. And everybody just, I don't know, just listened to him. And he had worked with the Bad Brains who, you know, we've heard stories. HR can be difficult or, you know, they were intense, volatile band. We figured if he could deal with HR with the Bad Brains, um, he could deal with our little band. So, you know, we, we got together with Rick and we, we loved him and, and uh, right away we wanted to make the record with him. So we did it at Electric Lady Studios, which we had done the other record at. and uh, That's gone now, right? It's still there. It's underneath still there. 8th Street, 52 West 8th Street. Still one of the things that we have in New York. And, um, yeah, Rick was there. His wife is really sweet and, and, and uh, people he worked with. And, and No Lunch was just a great experience. He brought Alan Vega in from uh from suicide and he sang on the song frankie and that was when i first connected with alan but i would see rick in the neighborhood in new york you know f even until recently you know he'd walk around and he lived on 19th street in gramercy and and you know i i missed that there were these characters as i grew up that you'd see joey ramone or howard stern or you know paul stan like just walking around and you still get a little of that but that kind of new york is that generation is changing and uh Whenever I'd see Rick, he'd come over and, you know, he'd be very sweet and put his hand on me and just see how you're doing. And I got to interview him uh, years later for the Bad Brains documentary I did with Mandy Stein, uh, Band in D.C. And You worked on that, did you? I did the interviews, yeah. Oh, I, I get like an executive that. producer credit, but... I didn't. I think they just didn't know what to give me, but I did all the early stuff, so all the interviews for me. Yeah, like talking around. to John Joseph or Anthony Kiedis or Rick Ocasek, and then they were following them around in the present. But it's I. It's a did. great movie, man. It's a really yeah, good film. yeah. At the time, uh, you know, it was so much going on around it, and and endless energy. It was a heavy time. So now I look back and watch it. I really get to enjoy it. And Mandy uh, Stein does great films. So, but yeah, so I did the interview with Rick there, and of course, when you do these interviews, they're as like you know <laughs> you're the interview guy they're a lot longer and you know you get to really talk and then 
the editing they do what they want but it was it was good to sit with with Rick again and uh such a sweetheart and beyond being a great artist I mean that first Cars record my god oh man I think it's the best new wave album ever made this just a great rock record and you know you hear Roy Thomas Baker I guess did that record and you hear all those vocal things that he did with Queen on there uh-huh. Good Times Roll all these voices layered but when that comes on in a car now or anywhere on the radio it still sounds like fresh like that record was so ahead of its time like the drums like it holds up it's like they haven't even reached that level now like and I remember as a kid you know didn't buy that many first albums because I was so young but I was like I knew like every song is good like you know it's one of those records and then like you know the other records are cool but like you know it's like that thing you have your whole life to write your first record so it's like you know whatever but um so great and uh his solo stuff was really cool and um you know i produced like you said that my favorite weezer records so i'm gonna miss rick a lot you know yeah another one of those people it's it's that time now isn't it where a whole generation of people that we grew up with listening to watching are reaching that age <coughs> yeah it's that's sad. true it really makes you uh you know see how fragile and fast life is and also to really appreciate, you know, those moments when you see somebody play or whatever, you know, you go to see a legend or whatever. And also that there's new stuff. You got to make way for for new bands and new energy. And, you know, last night there was a group that I produced on the bill, Hennessy, that I liked a lot. I don't know if you saw them. but We uh, got there for the last song and Kevin was telling me it's David Johansson's daughter's band, right? Is that uh, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Leah actually as uh, Mara's daughter, Mara Hennessy, and, and the band's called Hennessy and they're, just uh like kind of like to me like this electronic thing but meets like a pop thing so it's like blondie meets suicide meets i i don't know who had a label and describe but they ended the show with a water boys song uh we will not be lovers i think that was the last one they did they do a cover of that so but i i produced a, an ep for them and i'm pretty nice. excited about that but you know you gotta go out and see see the new stuff but but these people they don't make them like they did you know some of these old classic legends that you know well you said a few times last night like thank you for coming out and seeing the show and that's really i think the last bastille or vestige whatever you want to call it of the music industry right is the live show that's the one thing you can't download you can't replicate it like then there's nothing quite like being in a room with other people watching a communal like experience like that yeah, that's our church. That's our thing. And in in fact, you know, people think they can watch the YouTube clip or you can look at the setlist.com or whatever. <laughs> but, Stage it or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. But there's something that goes on. There's a different sound. There's a different energy. Even when you're younger, we don't want to tape and listen to tapes of the shows. You could learn a lot. But there's something that doesn't even make it to the recording. There's like another energy in the air that's you have to be there in that moment. Magic. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I believe in that. We're magicians here. <laughs> Murray the Magician. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jesse from Eagles has a a phrase where he says, there's a lot of wizards running around, but not many magicians. And he's (laughs) like, I want to see magic for real. You know, I don't want to see tricks. And I think that's what you get with a great band or a great actor. You know, you, you witness something that's truly unexplainable. Right. Oh, and it's when that happens, you're just like, then you believe in magic. <laughs> what are some of the top live experiences for you as a, a fan? Um, well, seeing Neil Young on the Ragged Glory tour, I think Social Distortion was opening. It was around Desert Storm time, and it was just unbelievable. Crazy Horse and him have this telepathic mm-hmm. kind of magical collect, you know, connection. He's always uh, great, but when he plays with them, it's like yeah. next level. Yeah, seeing the bad brains at CBGBs, you know, when they're just coming up in suits before they were even like Rasta, and seeing them open, you know, for the Dead Kennedys at Bonds, like just seeing most of those bad brains gigs in the early '80s were like probably some of the best live shows I've ever seen. Um, seeing Iggy Pop, you know, at the Ritz in New York, Dead Kennedys at Irving Plaza. Some, I mean, early stuff. Clash on the London Calling Tour was uh, with Lee Dorsey opening and really? the B Girls. Amazing. Um, you know, they were loose and raw, and you know, again, that's not, you know, now you go see bands. I saw the Stones recently, and they were really um, so good because. I don't know, they have something to prove. Like, I'd seen them a bunch in the 90s and, you know, early 2000s. It was always good, but not great. This was great. Like, Mick Jagger, if he was 20, would have been good. Forget that he had a heart operation he's 76. Like, he was good beyond. And I think that there is something to the fact that people tape or record with their phones or ever. I think it's made people to have to be okay, even... Game. Yeah, like, everything you do is, like, you know, grown up in public. So... But they were really, really strong on this Monday night at the, the MetLife uh, <laughs> Stadium. Um, I'm trying to think. But, you know, there, there's been moments in my life. Uh, Ricky Lee Jones recently I saw at a club called City Winery, and it just really blew me away. Seeing Tom Waits on the Mule Variations Tour in New oh, York. Man. You came out last yeah. night to Old 45, didn't you? Old 55. Sorry. Yeah, Old yeah, 55 yeah. from Closing Time, yeah. I've never seen him, man. He's top of my list of people that I've never seen that would, would love to, but I don't know whether. Does he still tour? Does he still do? He dates here and there, you know. I've got to get out to the yeah, East Coast it's of very, America, right? Yeah, I don't even know if he does that. I don't know. There, there's yeah I would, I would love to see that but um yeah, but i saw robert de niro on broadway in a play called cuba and his teddy bear with ralph macchio about a drug dealer on the lower east side that that was pretty amazing and um i saw al pacino in uh, this thing called chinese coffee like seeing some of those people on stage recently there, there's an actor you know he's a guy he's great you probably know him uh sam rockwell love i saw it. him do fool for love the the um you know the Sam Shepard play, and and that was insane. It was like you know, so sometimes performances aren't just you know with the guitars. But uh, go blank here on on what other amazing shows that I've seen. But I got to tell you that um, you know that that Bad Brains period in the early '80s was like seeing like something from another planet. So. New York obviously used to be a city that was overran with drugs and crime, right? Um, I was listening to the podcast you did with Dean Del Rey, which is great. 
and you were saying that you've never tried or touched drugs in your life. Is that right? Yeah, I never did. I mean, I probably have had a hit or two of pot, but I never like took acid or, you know, um, Coke. I never put anything in my nose or anything. I think that was the good thing about hardcore, too, at that time. We had watched, like, you know, Sid Vicious in the newspapers and Johnny Thunders and this and that. It just didn't seem sexy or attractive. It was like, we're going to be fucked up and be a, really have something to say about this world, and we're going to be in your face, and we're going to be loud, and we're going to be sober. It was that whole thing that, like, the hippies burnt themselves out, and the establishment could get these people on drug charges and different stuff. I don't know if I'm like so like against it. It just wasn't my thing. It didn't seem sexy to be sniffing something that you didn't know what it was. You know, like even with alcohol, which I drink, it's like it's a poison that's this government-regulated thing. You kind of know what you're going to get if you have a couple, but some guys in a back room stomping on coca leaves with sores on their feet. I don't know, you know. So uh, I guess I'm a little uh, nerdish that way, but it just, yeah, it didn't seem like it was going to be a thing. For me, it was always about the music, and that's kind of where I came together with the people you know but um we all come from like messed up backgrounds and you know some people needed to kill the pain lost a lot of friends through drugs too and that's that's the really the heartbreak you know i was watching there's this netflix series called the evolution of hip-hop and they're talking about the time when a lot of people were just out on the street doing freestyle battles in parks and, you know, on sidewalks. And they were saying that guy, and I've heard his name referenced loads. I think we spoke about him briefly at the end of the last podcast we did, uh, Mayor Giuliani. And it was around that time in New York that he was basically just shutting everything down, right? Yeah, Giuliani was like really what was his fascist. Deal? I went to jail twice. I think I might have said that during uh, his his time as mayor. He just had this quality of life, New York City thing. The guy had had a chip. I mean, he was this Italian guy that went after the San Gennaro feast in Little Italy. It's like a self-hating Italian. And he made it so you couldn't gamble there anymore and you couldn't drink on the street and took all the fun out of it. He went after mobsters, you know, you know, and he went after Hell's Angels. He put on fake colors and went into the Hell's Angels clubhouse. But when he was a district attorney... And then, um, was, was he driven by capitalism? What was his like move? I think he wanted to be president. I think, right. you know, also when September 11th happened, you know, he was there and he's very controlling kind of guy. So people, you know, looked up to him at that point. But before that, I think the police, everybody was starting to hate on him because he was just such like, he just, you know, like everyone was going through the system. Like I went to jail for an open container, played Madison Square Garden with Kiss and got arrested, went to jail for scotch taping a flyer up on a wall for a gig when I was out still promoting and um i had a club coney allen high that i started with some friends uh with record company advance money i wanted to have like a rock and roll high school nightclub i didn't know what i was doing and it was on saint mark's place and all these bands played and i you know we got closed for dancing because he started enforcing laws that hadn't been enforced in 100 years to raise revenue for the city like jaywalking or you used to be able to drink a beer in a paper bag it was okay now anything you're going through the jail and you i went to jail you go in for two three days in the tombs and they'd come in to stop people for dancing so we had signs up at this club that said no dancing allowed people thought it was a joke like that movie footloose mm -hmm. and literally it was true like two people or more moving in an organized fashion so they kept locking the place down and shutting us down for people dancing to the point where the club went out of business. And it was just like crazy. It's supposed to be New York, nightlife, 24-hour city. He cleaned it up a lot so I think the developers could come in. I think that was the thing. So to that make was it the for real person. estate yeah. money. It might have started with Ed Koch, the pre a mayor, a few uh, mayors previous to that. 
uh, before Dinkins. And yeah, they wanted to get it for the developers and the corporations to come in and make it like, you know, the new Times Square and some kind of Disney tourist, you know, place and make a bazillion more dollars. And uh, was that the beginning yeah. of it then, do you think, of the, the I think it, they say the it really started, like I was saying, with this other mayor, Mayor Koch, cleaning up Times Square. But at the time we didn't see it, it seems to like a fun city. And New York is still pretty good. There's still some things. But, you know, a lot of artists can't live in New York, New York, Manhattan. They've moved out to places that we all grew up in and ran away from like Brooklyn and now Queens and these places that's where there's clubs and hipster shops and tattoo shops and galleries and vegan spots you know but it used to be you lived downtown Manhattan it was cheap you could be an artist live you know in these little spaces and find a way to create and people wanted to come to New York I don't do Brooklyn or Queens that often because I come from those spots and put my days in and I'm not from America like some you know little millennial kid that thinks it's cool to just you know go and be a hipster so i still live in manhattan and uh, i like that i walk out my door there's still lots of cultures mixed to get mixed together and different energies and you know you just life just kind of happens but it is still used to be you went on tour and each city was different you know and yeah, it had different yeah, things yeah. now we see a lot of the same five six chain stores and you know these these you know drug stores and coffee places and all that that are everywhere so you used to enjoy going to each city and getting a different thing now you got to look a little harder you know you I'm, do and there's joy in discovery i think as well like it is a shame that a lot of these historic buildings and you know the, the culture is slightly being whitewashed and ripped out but as you say if you search you shall find like, yeah you just and you might sometimes just search by talking to people and walking off to even just like stare into your phone or whatever you can and look things up it's cool just to like let the night happen and New York, as I say, is still like, to me, a Santa Claus kind of town. It's a place for dreamers, you know, to come and do stuff. You just might have to rob somebody and get some <laughs> cash to do it. Dude, it's a bit of a heavy topic, again, um, but I do want to talk to you about it because it's one of those events which changed the world forever. Um, the, obviously, the anniversary was recently, September the 11th. Um, I've spoken to a few New Yorkers about that day on the show i'd love to hear what your uh, memories of that day was and then the you know the aftermath of it in that city as a new yorker um well you know it's a crazy day because i don't usually at that time ever get up before uh before noon or 1 p.m you know it was, uh, it was a while ago i'd sleep a lot later i was younger i didn't have as much to worry about and I was up that early day at 8 in the morning, so I saw the second plane hit. I was supposed to mix a track called High Lonesome, a demo that I was doing for a song of mine, and I was supposed to be with this guy, Bryce Goggin. And I had been with Ryan Adams uh, the night before. He had just finished shooting a video, the second one he did for New York, New York. Uh, we did the first one. He was a cab driver, and, and he scrapped it. And the second one they did with the Trade Center in the back. And... He had just done that, and I talked to him, and I got up the next day to meet the engineer at 8 in the morning, and I walked out my door. I lived across the street from the Hells Angels motorcycle chapter. This was a safe block in New York. It was just a good deal on an apartment. And a rock and roll friend neighbor was up early. He said, what are you here to put out the fire? And I was like, what? thought he was making fun of me that I was up early, you know. And I didn't know what he meant. And as I headed out, I couldn't get a taxi. And then I got down to 6th Avenue and got up on this. We were up on, like, vans and trucks. And people were standing on things to see what was going on, looking south. And saw the second plane hit. And we just thought it was an aviation accident. Nobody really knew it was, you know, like a terrorist thing or, you know, know what to think at that time. And I still went to the studio just because I didn't know what else to do. And watching the aftermath go down on the TV, the engineer was crying and... And I just walked down Fifth Avenue. I left him, and I walked down the street, and 
It was one of the most beautiful days uh, weather-wise, like the clearest, like we don't get that many amazing days in New York that are so perfect. And I walked down Fifth Avenue to go see, uh, you know, where my girlfriend would be at the time and to see if she was at work and she wasn't. And I bumped into her boss as this designer woman had owned the store and it was just me and her just having this exchange on the street and i didn't know what to do and i walked into this bar uh on the east side niagara that i had opened up with some friends years ago and maybe two years previous and i just never attended a bar in my life but i was so i started attending bar and we had the tvs on and you know the phones weren't working i tried to reach a few friends that were down there that worked in that area and um, the club I mentioned, Coney Island High, that got closed. A lot of our staff, when they got closed, moved to this place called Windows of the World, which was the top of the Trade Center. It was a nightclub that I'd been at a bunch of times. And so some of those friends were working there. And then I had friends doing security that I knew, and we couldn't reach anybody. And uh, the only way we saw people is they were just bumping into each other. And... Um, it was just really heavy. People just came in for hugs and drinks, and we watched the news, and we tried to reach friends. And one of my friends, uh, who was a security guy down there, got whisked away onto a barge covered with soot, but he had rescued, like, I don't know, 30 or 50 Wall Street Journal the journalists, got them out of their office. They didn't want to leave. They were right there, and, and you know, writers on deadline, I'm not leaving. You know, like, he's like, you got to get the hell out. And they put him on a barge, and he ended up in New Jersey, and we found him eventually... But people just started coming together downtown. And then as the night would go on, and realized what had happened. And it just really, you know, friends of mine started to run down to the site to try to help and look for people and get involved. And you could smell it over the next day coming up. You know, I was like maybe a mile, a mile and a half where I lived. There was a film in the air and a smell of like a crematorium or something. Just really horrible thing. And as it went on, you know, it just, it, it, we, we wanted to do something. So, uh, you know, uh, friends were making T-shirts for the firemen and people were lost. People didn't want to believe that, you know, some people were not going to turn up. You still had a lot of hope that you would find people and uh it was just a horrible thing but there was a real unity to new york people really came together and uh we played a show me and ryan adams and sold all these shirts for the fire department that our friend aaron had made and uh in his video crazy enough had had this thing with the trade center in the back with this love song in new york the timing was you know and you literally shot that the night before he did yeah, yeah. i was in the studio but yeah it was just uh and and, and so uh you know we 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 did a compilation that some friends put together, a, a CD for songs for New York, and people just were doing anything they can. I had friends going down there and working for hours and helping out, and, um, you know, it was a shock. It was just like, and then, you know, you start to get into why this happened and all the politics, and then that's a, a deeper conversation. But I went on the road after that, and I decided to keep a tour and go out west, and, you know, we got into some trouble. They thought we were speeding or stole a car in Illinois, and they threw us on the side of the road, these cops, me and this bass player, Johnny Paisano, and in the middle of the night, they thought our the car we had was stolen. It's, it's a long story. It wasn't. And, one, and they had guns on us and everything, and once they found out we were from New York, you know, they just like chilled out and like suddenly the cops changed in the middle of America and Illinois started to really respect us. And we went around the whole country just two weeks after this had happened. We didn't know what else to do, but 
keep playing music and to see the love that people had. And, and, and I thought, you know, that, you know, New York was starting to become a bit popular and trendy and gentrified. I thought this would scare everybody away and it would just be the hardcore New Yorkers, but it made people sympathetic and, and want to come. And New York got even bigger as far as a population and a destination. Um, throughout time, you know, so many people would be gone. And when you'd find out that there is so many, you know, on clear things with why this went down and mystery to it and and speculations and and just just horrible and um to to then you know see your friends and everybody it just it made you step back and realize that you know again like i said earlier just how important to love each other and how important to stick together i think i went for a run with some of my childhood best friends we didn't know what to do like the day after we were up in central park but everything was roped off downtown and you you couldn't really you know get into that area a lot of people were displaced and you know just were couldn't go back home and stuff so it's something to never forget and a, a year later you know it was just and, and now 18 years later it's it's you know you can go right back there and i can still feel it and see it and hear people screaming and lost and and, and still smell that that horrible smell that was in the air for about 2 weeks so, yeah I think it's in moments like that you pray to whoever that they never happen. Like with Paris, it's a similar kind of a, a coming together in a sense of unity and community where cities and people really show that character and strength and determination, <coughs> don't they? Yeah. And I don't know, you know, I guess I was meant to be up to be part of this at 8.30. Like, I never would have got up at that time. It was just a not, you know, weird thing. I would have woke up people. And, then, you know, people couldn't reach you from other cities and in the states. And no one knew, you know, what was going on. Just uh, there was a real fear of, like, wow, this this is like. And then there was a Con Ed plant uh, not too far away from us that was an exit off the FDR highway that was a very convenient exit to our east side neighborhood on the Lower East Side, and, and they closed out right away because it, it was like a truck could ride into it and you could knock the lights out of the whole city, so they closed that exit, and that's been closed ever since. But, um, you know, there's you know a lot to be said probably and thought about that, but like a lot of things, Pearl Harbor or JFK, and, you know, I um, definitely have my feelings that I don't think it was just, you know, some random thing. I think that there was probably a lot more to it, and, you know, it's weird enough that after that happened, we went into war looking for these weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist, and the government at the time was manufacturers, Hal Burton, they own that company, and making money through war, so you create this fear, and you make people want to do something, and, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I, sometimes I wonder if those people in September 11th were sacrificed to be able to then go into these, you know, get the whole country behind a war, because you really wanted to do something, you really felt like you needed to, you know, I don't know, even the most peaceful people felt really, you know, it was really an assault. And uh, I had a friend that lost his sister and, you know, another friend of mine that saved all those people would die a few years later from, from lung cancer and they were covered with all this garbage that was in those those buildings. And, um, and I had been up in the towers, you know, a bunch as, at, for different events in the top floor and, you know, I, I can't even imagine. A lot of the people that worked for us at Coney Island High, though, they weren't in that day, um... Luckily, they weren't at work, and they they lived. So that was that was something. There was some people there. So. To lighten the tone, Jesse. Woo! 
Bob Strauss. <laughs> Bob Strauss, my uh, tour manager. What's the deal with that character right uh, now? It just happened, you know, <laughs> something that, we, you know, when you're traveling, it's really boring and crazy. And, you know, so we'd be on the road and I'd go into a gas station and I'd put on glasses. And I always at airports put on shows just because you're bored and there's people around looking. You're waiting at a gate. You're delayed. I'd get up on airplanes for years and do different characters and voices. And Bob Strauss suddenly became the road manager. We were traveling to Lollapalooza and... Uh, we were going through the Midwest and Seven Elevens and whatever, and put on I put on all the stuff in the store, not buy it, and hold yeah, up yeah. my phone and make these characters. <laughs> and suddenly he developed into uh, a very professional road manager, and eventually he's going to need his own Instagram channel and yes, own yes. Uh, outlet. But uh, yeah, so and then he stored in a couple videos, uh, "Meet Me at the End of the World," I saw it the, the other first night. one, and "Meet Me at the End of the World" again. But, you know, sometimes also, you know, you're doing these videos and you're trying to come up with something poignant and serious, and sometimes it's more fun just to to just have a goof and not be, like, so serious about, here, I'm the songwriter, and so. Well, the tone of it, especially of Meet Me Around the World again, the tone of it is, you know, it's got this kind of wistful, nostalgic feel, and that character somehow, some way, gives that video heart. Yeah, well, we did the first video. We did the first video in New York where we just go around these locations, and we did the second video. I get in character, and we're going to go to L.A., and I'm not that comfortable on the streets of L.A. the way I'm in New York and knowing my neighborhood, so I didn't know how people were going to react. And so much of this video or the Bob Strauss character is how people, and it's all random. Everybody in that Meet Me at the End of the World Again video is a spontaneous walk-up. I think they're not even, you know, I don't know. They just they walk right by, and either they start dancing and they get into it with me, and we do a bit, <laughs> or they don't. But like, so there's nothing that we plan. We you just go out and gorilla. Yeah, 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 I'm out. We got the music pumping. Oh, I'm did? in character. We <laughs> carry a whole bunch of different outfits. I keep changing. We drive from, you know, scene to scene. You know, Hollywood Boulevard to Beverly Hills, and and whatever happens, we just get and. And L.A., actually, they were more outgoing than New York. Really? And more into it. Hey, everyone wants to be a star. <laughs> I love them. If people haven't seen them, they should definitely check them out. And I tagged, I don't know whether you saw this, but there was a picture of Steven Tyler with like a oh, banana, banana phone, phone. Yeah, yeah. kind of glasses. Obviously, yeah. he's got that kind of crazy look going on anyway. He's already in the like, Bob Strauss family. Bob's look right there. Yeah. <laughs> I just saw Aerosmith recently in Atlantic City, and they were so good. But yeah, I saw him on the banana it's phone. It's amazing, isn't it? you yeah. got to interview him someday. Have you done it? Steven Tyler or yeah. Bob Strauss? Well, that's both, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Steven Tyler. <laughs> Steven would be a dream guest, a dream yeah. guest. He's <clears throat> For me, he's in the top front man ever to do it. Yeah. Like he's, he's one of those guys. I've seen so few, few people do it. It, but he'll he'll get the live action camera that's obviously broadcasting the feed to the back of the field or wherever. He'll work that camera like he's on a music video shoot, like singing into it. Oh yeah, he loves it. He's, it. he's the master. And Joe Perry has this sleazy kind of cool, dirty, sloppy guitar style that I've always loved. You know, I like the seventies Aerosmith stuff. But, Rocks, you know, toys in the attic. Yeah, totally. Fuck yeah. So the venue you played last night, Alice Cooper played there a couple of years back with Johnny Depp. With Joe Hollywood. Perry, with I guess all the Hollywood vampire guys. Wow! And uh, I wasn't there, but a few friends were, and they said it was just one of those nights that was like you know maybe two hundred people crammed in there, and wow, that's crazy. Hollywood fucking vampires <laughs> in that little spot. Yeah, that was nuts. But um, yeah, it was a fun way to do a record release to go to a place like that. And for for this album, we did one in New York at Webster Hall, and then we did this one last night. And now we're just gonna go out and tour the record, you know, through the states, and then come back to Europe in in March and April, and. We're going to do some festival stuff and, you know, all the usual bananas, you know. 
what else you got going on and when are you going to start a podcast i think you should oh uh, i did one where i interviewed walter Lore from lamf but you know you're you've been doing it a long time it's gotten a little popular like a friend of mine in la is like every guy in his closet and his underwear has got a podcast like yeah you know so it has to be done right and it, you know joseph arthur is a buddy of mine he's been doing one called uh come to where i'm from and and i did the first one to kind of kick it off i was the guest i, I probably talked too much but um uh, who me now but um it, he's got you know keith morris and he had mike imperioli from sopranos and nice. and and just a wide mix of folks but um yeah there's some good ones i don't know if i can take it on now I, I'm, I'm good enough doing this band and and all that but but it's always good to chat with you i remember we went and we were talking about all before the podcast we did an interview for uh was it Clash Magazine or we listed favorite uh, jam songs? That was for Classic Rock. Classic yeah, Rock. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. That was that cool. was in this hotel actually downstairs. Oh right. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, we're here in Camden. We're here in Camden Lock. Don't jump in. I didn't know this. Uh, bon Scott died in Camden, didn't he? He did in a car, right? I didn't know that yeah, until I heard the Dean podcast that you did, and you were saying yeah. that. Do you ever meet him? Do you ever watch I them? never did. I saw no. them when I was a little kid, and he had no shoes on and tattoos <laughs> and flare pants, bell bottoms, and, and no shirt, and I was scared. He was like I was, pirate style. I was scared so of him. Comedy. He had a tattoo, you know. Yeah, when no one did. Yeah, 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 yeah. That voice. I went to see him. I was 11. They opened for UFO at the Palladium, and I was like, it was six bucks. I can't believe I saw that. They opened with Livewire. And uh, I was frightened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those records, I love the Brian Johnson era as well, but there's there's something about the early power age, high voltage. Oh, movie. yeah. I used to get beaten up by the kids in, in school, you know, when I liked Kiss, the older kids would be like, Kiss sucks. And then I got into other groups like Cheap Trick, you know, and ACDC. I had a badge that said ACDC, and they would beat me up because they thought I was saying I was bisexual. Both ways. Yeah, 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 and then the same kids, you know, years later when the band got big and they had the Back cannon, black, and yeah, like... those about the rock, they were the same people into it. I was like, man, it was ignorant times, but uh, it was dangerous to like ACDC. <laughs> yeah, man, well, I mean, he'd go on top of the pops over here dressed like a schoolgirl. With yeah, I saw that. Too. <laughs> saw those videos recently. Oh, man. Well, dude, always a pleasure. <coughs> yeah, man. Shake my hand. Great. And uh, everything seems to be going great, and it's really good to see you, man. It's good to catch up. I want to get out to New York sometime. I've got to get out there. You got to come, and, and we'll hook up some interviews and walk around. But how many podcasts have you done? Where are you at? What number is this? As we stand today, recording 127. Woo! Yeah, one of my favorites is uh, the Clem Burke one that I really liked. You know, I've known Clem for a lot of years, but they never knew his whole story. And, and a guy that's, you know, one of the greatest drummers, but had been around so much great stuff. And, and, and that one uh, got me really excited. I was like, I want to do this podcast. Well, I remember the series of events was crazy because obviously my ex used to or maybe still does work with you. And so we knew each other anyway. And I remember you emailed out Kevin probably and said, I've heard this podcast. I want to go on it. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's Matt. And that's like, the guy oh, you yeah, did the Paul guy. Weller thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and here we are. Um, and the final thing I want to ask you is, have you seen the Agnostic Front documentary? I did, and I really liked How it. How good is it? I really liked the director, the way they made that film. It's like I, you know, has about it, the heart and the soul of it. And about it? this relationship of these people, you yeah. know. I know Vinny Stigma since I'm like 13 or 14, and, you know, he's such a character. And, and Roger's really such a, a great guy in a, in a different way, yeah. It, it, it's just got a feel. That director did a wonderful job. Um, I always think films are great if you don't know the band or even aren't signed on for the music and you still keep, the, the, keep it watching, you know, so... Would a documentary or a book be something you'd like to explore about your? I definitely would life? like to write a book, but you know, again, everybody's doing that. Um, like Jeff Tweedy said, I guess you know, I guess you do it sooner before you forget everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or while people are still interested, but um, I'm trying to find an angle on it because you know, there's good ones and bad ones, and. I don't want to be just a total name drop, but and then I went with Kiss to the, you know, but um, 
I think uh, it's something. The film thing, I don't know. You know, that could fall into someone else would have to want to do that and, instead of who do I think I am, that category. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if it I does got happen, movies. I'm sure there's enough stories there to fill many, many chapters. So. Yeah, I guess so. Nice <laughs> I'm one, still dude. writing them. <laughs> Good to see you, man. Adios. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.